I don't know that ever in my life I have written a sermon for two services on a Sunday morning and not preached it until Wednesday night. I think this is a first, so this is kind of cool. It's kind of different. I don't know how you live your life. I don't know how you, uh, how you go about uh, setting the stage for your day or your month or your year, but do you have goals? Do you have a plan for your life? Do you kind of have that, that set, of, set of things that are out there and you go, this is what I'm working toward or this is what I'm working for or here's who I'm trying to become? That's a little bit of what we're going to talk about uh, tonight is what is it that you, that you see ahead? What is it that you're working toward? What do you have your mind set on? Uh, if you've got your Bible, what we're going to be looking at is Luke 9. We're going to start in the 51st verse. It's going to take us a couple minutes to get there. One of the things that I get asked pretty often as a senior pastor of this place is, uh, it's the same question. People in some way or another say, well, you must have had quite the plan there when you guys got started eight and a half years ago. I mean, that's pretty amazing where you are. You must have really had things figured out. And I kind of laugh. Because we were wondering when we first started if we were going to have a church that first Christmas. We never started out to have land or, or even buildings or a big congregation or a staff of a certain size. And people don't always understand it when I say, is, you know, the only thing that we really had was a crystal clear understanding of God's call for us and clarity of the vision that He was calling us to. So we, we understood before we really were even a church that gathered, we understood where it was that God wanted us to go and what God wanted us to do along the way. Every Sunday you hear that we're about three things. You hear me say it again tonight, teaching the truth of God's Word. Why? Because God's Word is as relevant today as the day that it was written. But being people of prayer, why? Because God invites us, the Creator of the universe invites us to bring anything that's on our heart, anything that's on our mind, a celebration or a trouble, a problem or, or whatever it is that we feel, we get to bring it to Him because He cares. So we're people of prayer. And the third thing is worship. We put a high priority on worship. What these folks do for us here cannot be overstated because what they do is that they create the environment for us to worship God, which is what we're going to spend all of eternity doing. That's not all that we do, and it's not all that we value. But those three things are the, the, the foundation of the way that God has called us as a church to live out the vision that He had for us when we began all those years ago. Now, we knew that raising up pastors and teachers of His Word was going to be critical. Before we even gathered the first Sunday. We knew we were going to do that. We knew that, that gathering a congregation and growing them as disciples of Jesus and providing the best ministry that we could for the young people were, were things that we had to be about. Caring for each other and caring for our community. Being a church that made the communities that we're involved with better for our being there. Not expecting them to serve us, but us wanting to serve them. A church that was rooted in missions and carrying out the Great Commission, not just saying that we believe in it, but actively doing it, are all a part of who we are and how it is that we live out during the week those first three things that we talk about every time that we gather for worship. So what's important is that we're clear on the call that God has for us, even if what we're really doing is learning the direction that God will lead us in a little bit at a time. We understand the vision, but we don't always understand the steps along the way. Knowing the importance of the big call on who we are as a church allows us to be flexible and prepared to adapt to things when God makes the details clear along the way. 
In our passage we're going to look at from the uh, Gospel of Luke, ninth chapter, we see Jesus is really clear on the call that God has on His life. Jesus is clear even to the point of having a pretty tense conversation with His disciples. See, they're the ones that get caught up in what they think are the important details, but really it's all just a part of God's plan and the journey that Jesus was on here on earth. And the disciples thought they had it figured out. And all too often, I think people in churches think we've got it figured out because we've got the next new thing or the next great thing or the thing that's going to change everything. When in reality, when God doesn't change, the mission of the church shouldn't change. So let's take a look. Gospel of Luke, ninth chapter, starting in the 51st verse. When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The key word is set his face. This is after the transfiguration that you heard about. And this is just before he's going to be going to heaven because his life on earth is going to end. When it says that he set his face, what we would say today is our phrase would be more like he was determined or he set his mind to or my favorite is he was steadfast in his resolve. Jesus set His mind to Jerusalem. I would love to have known what that was like to be around Jesus when He set His mind to something. I have to imagine that was, that was a pretty immovable decision on His part when He set His face to go to Jerusalem. He's entering the last days. The days with His disciples are numbered. He's only got so much time to help them understand their mission that they're going to carry on and continue this thing that He began. And they still aren't getting it. They still haven't figured it out. They don't understand it. And yet they've got this call from God on their lives as well. And the trip through Samaria, again, it wouldn't have been what they chose. It was out of the way. The disciples would have gone any other route if they could. It was unexpected. It was Jesus doing what Jesus does. But it was one last opportunity that Jesus had out here in the desert to be exposed to another group of people and to teach His disciples yet another lesson. Verse 52. Jesus sent messengers ahead of Him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for Him. Now, we've talked a little bit about the Samaritans. They're a mixed-race group of people. Uh, They were probably by blood nearly as Jewish as what the Jewish people were. But the Jewish people thought because of of the history of the country and, and their intermarrying and the divided kingdom and all, they, they saw the Samaritans as a completely different race of people. They, their horrible name for them was the dogs of the desert. There wasn't much respect. So the fact that Jesus would be in their country, much less going to their village to talk to them, is something the disciples just didn't understand. It didn't make sense. And then here they were, and He sends them ahead to make preparations for Him. At this point, Jesus has got a pretty large group of people that are following Him. So it wouldn't be outside the realm of reason or possibility that as this group, this entourage that followed Jesus, worked its way now toward Jerusalem, that gathering of people that was traveling could very well have been as many in number as the village they were about to go into. It wasn't probably just the twelve. It was probably a larger group of people who had fallen under the teaching of Jesus. They'd come under His teaching. They were, they were learning from Him. They were growing with Him. Knowing how important the value of hospitality was in Middle Eastern culture, my guess is that Jesus didn't want to overwhelm the villagers with the inability to provide a hospitable welcome for them. He was essentially sending out a courtesy party to announce their arrival. It wasn't that Jesus needed or expected special treatment. My guess is it was the sheer size of that group 
that Jesus wanted to give a little bit of a heads up and a notice. We're on the way. We're going to be there tomorrow. Verse 53. His disciples get there and it says, But the people did not receive Him because His face was set towards Jerusalem. This is where we step into this now. And I'll show you in a little bit. Because we read this and we think, Wow, they're not very nice people. So here's where the disciples began to get them in trouble. It says two things the Bible does in this verse. Both of them are very clear, the second of which we don't really see. It says the people did not receive them. They weren't open to welcoming Jesus or His followers with hospitality in the village. And that seems like an odd thing. You'd think, well, why would you expect anything else of the Samaritans? But then the second half of the verse tells us why. Why did they not receive Him? Because His face was set towards Jerusalem. Something was going on in the spiritual realm that these folks responded to. They didn't hate Jesus. It doesn't say that here. It doesn't say that they don't want to get to know Him or that they didn't want to welcome Him or that there were too many people or not enough food. It simply says that His face was set towards Jerusalem. They understood that He was steadfast in His resolve and His determination to go to Jerusalem. It could be read that in a strange way they were helping Jesus get to where He was headed. His determination was so strong that this group of people wasn't going to stop Him from accomplishing what He had set out to do. Verse 54, And when the disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, I love this response, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? There's a lot going on in that verse. These disciples, they've learned some things. They knew the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. They knew it come from somewhere. They knew that fire came from, from somebody somewhere. And they knew Jesus was connected to that power. But they didn't say, Hey, Jesus, why don't you call down fire from heaven? See, they knew that these very ordinary men, they knew that because who they were with and the power that they had through Him, they could literally call down fire from heaven that would devour and consume and destroy the Samaritan village and everyone in it. Do you want us to tell fire? They are going to command fire to come down and destroy the village. Were they right in having that authority? Sure they were because Jesus doesn't ever say, Guys, you can't do that. He just walked on the water. They know what He can do. So in their mind, there has been an offense that's been committed. They, they're ready for a Sodom and Gomorrah fire and brimstone from heaven moment. They're going to stand behind Jesus. You turn Him away, watch what we do to you. They wanted to destroy the entire village of people for refusing Jesus. They had this immediate sense of being offended. And they were ready to take tremendously powerful retribution on the part of Jesus, on behalf of Jesus, for what they'd done. Verse 55, though, gets to Jesus' response. But He turned and He rebuked them. Jesus didn't rebuke the Samaritans. Jesus didn't say anything to the village that said, no, keep going, we don't want you here. Because they saw that His face was set to Jerusalem. He rebuked the disciples for how easily they were offended for their misplaced aggression, for not understanding the real business that Jesus was about. Jesus wasn't about being entertained by villages along the way. Jesus was about getting to Jerusalem. And the disciples, they wanted to stand up and, and protect Him because He wasn't doing it for Himself. They were offended for Jesus because they wouldn't, rec they wouldn't welcome Him into their village. 
They were no doubt appalled that these Samaritans refused to extend the most basic of hospitality to the Son of God. So let's burn them up. And Jesus rebukes the disciples. And I think you and I do the same thing a lot. We hear things through the ears of our experience. Sometimes we don't even hear what's said. We just hear what we hear. And we make a decision about it. We look at the actions of others and we, we think that we know what's going on because we know what we would do in a similar circumstance, so this has to be what's happening, even though we have no real idea what's happening in the background. We take a, a, a small portion of information and we create a huge scene out of it, which most often we're very wrong about, which is exactly what the disciples did. Now, I'm sure that nobody's ever said or done anything to you that's caused you to emotionally or verbally or physically overreact in a way that was completely out of line. I'm sure you've never done that. But some people do. And the truth is, in ways large or small, at some point or another, we all do it. We all get caught up in that. We think we deserve to be respected, to be treated the way we want to be treated by everyone. The disciples had an idea of what that village should have done for Jesus, and the village didn't do it, and they got angry. We don't get treated the way we think that we should. We think, well, it's only fair. I deserve that, right? We hear somebody say something about us, and we immediately jump to the worst possible scenario for whatever it was that we heard, and we go into mental overdrive either in our reaction or in plotting to get even. That's what the disciples did. See, they didn't pick up that subtle clue that the Samaritans just saw Jesus resolve and let Him keep going. They took it as an offense. They, they were offended and they thought they had a right to be offended because, hey, they were the big guy himself. If you're not going to welcome Jesus, who are you going to welcome? I got news, though. See, Satan is going to use what we wrongly believe is our right to be offended, and he's going to destroy us and the relationships with the people around us. And he's going to destroy it because we're going to think that I have a right to feel the way I feel and to be treated the way that I want to be treated. And Satan is going to convince us that we have every right and we have every expectation of people treating us the way that we should be treated. Satan somehow got into the minds of the disciples and caused them to believe that they had a right, that they were justified to, to pass judgment and execute a death sentence on the people of this little village because the people of the village saw that Jesus had set His sights on Jerusalem. In fact, the only one in this short passage, the only ones that understand what re- Jesus' real business is, is the villagers in Samaria. The disciples missed it. The village said no because he was on his way to Jerusalem. So easy for us to be convinced that no matter what the truth or what the evidence in front of us, we know what's really going on. I don't care what you tell me. I know the truth. We call it intuition or, guys, we call it our guts. We've got a gut feeling. Sometimes we, we tell ourselves, well, God told me in the Spirit because when someone says that, there's nothing you can say about it, right? I mean, now you're arguing with God through the person. That's dangerous stuff there. But we have this language that we convey that we really know what's going on when maybe what's really going on is that our own garbage is being played out in a way that's directed more by the enemy of God than by anything God's actually saying to us. The disciples decided that their place was to 
kill an entire village full of people because they recognized that Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem. See, the fact of the matter is the disciples had no right whatsoever to be offended. And as Christians, neither do you or I. As Christians who are living as disciples for Jesus, offense is not a right of ours. What it really is is a powerful tool of the devil to get into our mind and to separate us from each other and from God. So I'm thinking about this message in the wake and I'm going, okay, how do I, how do I make this point? How do I use something away from the story to lighten it up a little bit and, and use the example? I thought, aha, I know. I'm going to go back to a, a previous career of mine or what I wanted to be a career in college. I wanted to be a paleontologist. I wanted to study dinosaurs. So I, I kind of halfway created a degree for myself and I would spend uh, big chunks of time out in the badlands of North Dakota because then you could actually find a fossil and bring it home and find bones of dinosaurs and chunks of this and chunks of that and, and rocks. Now that, that's what I want to do with my life. But one of the things that frustrated me was that a little tiny bone fragment a little tiny bone fragment tells a much bigger picture to a paleontologist than what that paleontologist really has a right to. There's a dinosaur called a, a Denicarius. You've never heard of it. I only know it because I saw a picture of it once and I remembered it because it's a goofy-looking thing. Scientists had two sections of bone. That was it. This is what they found. Forearms of this dinosaur. You're going to need to remember this picture, so don't go to the next one yet, Deb. This is all that they had. Claws on the one, no claws on the other. Pretty good arm, all the way up to the shoulders. So in your mind, just pause for a moment now, because this gets to our lesson. What does a dinosaur look like? If you're a paleontologist, you know, you've got some pressure on you to come out with a new species of dinosaur, because these are a new species of bones. What in the world does it look like? Where are you going to go from there? So they take these few bones and they... They decide that they're going to do a, an artist's rendering of what the animal looks like. And I'm not joking with this because this is, this is the drawing because there's no pictures, right? Because it was a dinosaur. You with me? That was funny. Come on. This is the artist's rendering of what a dinosaurus looks like. Now I ask you, how do they know? Go back one slide, would you? Can we go backwards? Maybe that doesn't work. Yeah, that's what they had to start with. Those are real dinosaur fossils, right? This is what they had to work with. And the next picture, this is what they came up with. That is the artist's rendering. They figured that they know what the coloring is and the coat is and the skull looks like and even the back feet. And so apparently, this is a feathery giraffe, wild turkey, eagle dinosaur. I don't want to be a paleontologist anymore because I find that ridiculous. What that is is a foregone conclusion trying to drive another agenda. And that's what the disciples got a little bit caught up in. We've got to be careful of taking a little bit of what sounds or it seems like it's the truth and creating a big, hairy, feathery, giraffe-looking story out of it that may have absolutely nothing to do with the situation that we're involved with. And then furthermore, we've got to be careful we don't put an art, a drawing out there telling the world this is what it looks like. The thing that I just find so funny is the guy put his name on it. 
The one thing you realize when you study dinosaurs is all we've got to go on in 99.9% of the cases is partial bones. They have no idea what the skin looks like. The idea of there being giraffe fur and feathers, that's got actually nothing to do with the dinosaur. It's got to do with what science wants to put out there. So what happened in this passage then? What happens next? What's Jesus' response? What does Jesus do at this thing that got the disciples so offended that they wanted to call fire from heaven down to destroy the people? You know what Jesus did? He said, let's go on to another village. Rather than being offended, Jesus kept going to the goal. He just simply kept moving. Come back to this a lot when we run into obstacles and roadblocks and things that don't make sense and people don't want to try to stop what we're doing. I come back to, back to this a lot and I realize what we just need to do is keep going to what God has called us to. Whatever is stopping us in the moment isn't going to stop us permanently. We just need to keep going on to our next village. What's the real goal? What is God leading us to? Rather than focusing on what appears to be the problem, what is the solution that God has already prepared for us? Because the problem doesn't surprise God. The solution is already prepared. And if we get too focused on the problem, we never get to the solution. So what did Jesus do? Jesus said, well, the goal is Jerusalem. I am steadfastly resolved. And they kept on walking. As Christians, in our daily walk with Jesus, we're called to discipleship that is marked by steadfast commitment to the cause of Christ among us and a determination to carry on no matter the cost. Jesus wasn't worried that the village wouldn't receive Him. Jesus knew that that village wasn't home. It wasn't where He was going to stay. It was a stop along the way. When we run into trouble is when we believe that we've been offended or when things aren't fair or someone treats us in a way that's different than what we think that we deserve. The disciples were so appalled that they said to Jesus, let's do the unimaginable. And Jesus says, let's go on to the next village. If our primary concern in life is to live as a disciple of Jesus, then we have to do what He did. Let go of any temptations to get swallowed up by offense or fairness or anything else and, and continue on in love to the next village. Realize that there's nothing in the text that says Jesus even said a negative word about them. The Son of God, they wouldn't receive Him. And He just moved on. So what do we do? We move on in love to the next person, the next task, the next mission, the next ministry the next day at work, or the next person that we meet. God never promises that things are going to go our way in life. He simply asks us to follow His way with our lives. And we want things to go our way, but what God says is just follow me in my way. That divine Jesus that Ryan taught us about a couple of weeks ago, who was witnessed in the transfiguration, is now the very human Jesus who's making a mental switch to walk toward the cross in Jerusalem and His death for us. And even though He could have handled this a hundred different ways, 
had he stuck around and found another village and spent some time with them, he could have stayed out of harm's way. He might have been able to keep living till goodness knows how old. Instead, Jesus lived in God's will for him. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was steadfastly resolved to walk into the grip of the enemy to his own death so that we, so that you and I, might be saved from our sins and have the assurance of eternal salvation because of him, because he was steadfastly resolved to die for you. At this point, the disciples still didn't understand that. So once again, and we talk about this a lot around here, it comes down to choice, your choice. Will you live for Jesus and keep your eyes on the things above God's big picture? Or will you get caught up in the little offenses of day-to-day living? If we focus on the Old Testament words of Micah 6.8 and we set our minds to live according to them, God's going to take care of the rest. What does it say? He, God, has told you, O man and O woman, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? You know what? You can do that. You don't have to reinterpret the Bible. You don't have to create a new political agenda. You don't even have to run for office. But you can do that. Are you going to get caught up in the daily grinder of feeling offended, of feeling sorry for yourself, of feeling like you're not being treated fairly, of wanting others to suffer because of how you feel? And that's exactly what the disciples did. They wanted those villagers to suffer because how they made the disciples feel. Of asking God to call down fire and brimstone on anyone who's ever wronged you. Yeah, you can point your finger at others' misdeeds and mistreatments of you all day long, and at the end of the day, all that you're going to have is you and your pointy little finger. I know people who do that. They're miserable. No one's ever going to apologize and make the world right for them because the fact is there's nothing wrong with the world. It's with them and how they see it. The disciples, remember, were the ones rebuked by Jesus, not the villagers. It's your choice. Matthew 22, 37-39, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. For us as Christians, it's a matter of living to serve Jesus, not expecting Jesus or others to serve us. If you consider yourself a Christian, truthfully, you have no right to demand or expect anything from others. No right to feel offended. No right to ask God to punish somebody else. We have only the call to live and treat others the way that God asks us to do in His Word. To live each day as a disciple of Jesus, to become a a little bit more like Him and a little bit less like our old selves. So the choice is yours. What will you set your mind to? And the choice is simply this. Jesus or the things of the world. And it sounds so simple, but when you put that with Micah 6.8, it really is. And that's the choice that we have as Christians. Will we serve Jesus or will we expect the world to serve us? Who will you be? What will you do? What will you choose? Let's pray. God, I can't imagine being resolved to go on a long journey by foot through a desert, through uncomfortable country, to go to a city full of people who 
end up just wanting me dead. And yet that's what Jesus did. He was firmly resolved. He set His face to Jerusalem for us. And your Son, the King of Kings, served us, thought of us, and died for us. And all that you ask for us is to live for you. It just doesn't seem like very much when we look at it that way. And yet every day we've got the choice. Do we live to be served or do we live to serve? God, help us to be like Jesus. Help us to live to serve. In His name, Amen. Okay, so if you don't know anything about lizards, which dinosaurs are, here's the thing that you need to understand. They don't actually have fur, much less multicolored fur. They don't have long fur, and, and there's really not a lot of evidence that they had feathers. But a lot of the stuff that we get all bunched up over is about as goofy. Darwin and I had the opportunity to meet with some folks this week and talk church stuff, and I always love talking church stuff. And uh, I, I'm, if, if you get to know me, I'm, I'm pretty basic. I'm pretty simple about things. I, don't, I love to read, but I, I think that God's answer for us is not always found in the depths. I think it's found in the, in the simple stuff. And I, I had a chance to talk about what, what is it, what do we do? What are we doing here? And so for eight and a half years, I've kind of had the same thought every morning. And it gets to the heart of what we're talking about here. How do we live as Christians and how do we stay out of the, the trap of offense and how do we not get caught up wanting to call down fire? You know, it's as simple as this. We love Jesus. We love people. And we teach people to love Jesus. It's as simple as that. And here's the big thing. I go back, what was the big plan eight and a half years ago? To love Jesus to love people, and to teach people to love Jesus. Apparently it works because it's God's plan. 